Dr. Livingston, I presume. That was a terrible accent. I don't even know what that was. How many of you have heard that phrase? Several of you. Yeah, it's a very famous phrase, but where did it come from? There was this Scottish medical doctor in the mid-1800s named Dr. David Livingston. And Livingston just was passionate about Jesus. And he wanted to go into medical missions, specifically in China. And so he tries to get over there, but it was during the time of the opium wars in the mid-1800s. And so he's not allowed to go in. He doesn't have the opportunity. Doors are shut all over the place. And meanwhile, he has a friend, a mutual contact, who says, hey, come over to South Africa. See what God is doing here. And so he goes to Africa, and he just falls in love with the people. In fact, he never leaves. He stays in, Af- in Africa for the rest of his life for decades. He meets his wife there. He is ministering to the people there. He is sharing the gospel all over the continent of Africa and telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. He's seeing lives changed, tribes transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, and God is receiving every shred of glory for it. But it wasn't all roses. It wasn't all peaches and cream. He had to go through some suffering and some hardships. It's said that he walked over, get this, 29,000 miles across Africa. This is without roads, without any paving the way. 29,000 miles across Africa spreading the gospel. I have a hard time walking to the refrigerator. Imagine that on your Fitbit, 29,000 miles. His wife died early in the ministry. He faced opposition constantly from his Scottish kinsmen. He was partially blind for most of his life. He fought as an abolitionist against the slave trade in Africa. He was, get this, he was attacked by a lion and survived. Let's think about that for a second. He was attacked by a lion. If you're attacked by a lion and you survive, you now have the coolest story of anyone in the room. That's amazing. He was attacked over 30 times by various tribes on his journeys. And yet, he refused to leave Africa. He ministered fiercely to the native people, so much so that he actually contracted malaria and dysentery and died. And it's said that he took his final breaths while kneeling in prayer at his bedside, praying for Africa, praying for the peoples there. Rumor has it that Great Britain, after he passed away, said, hey, we want his body, we want to do a proper ceremony, a proper memorial service, a funeral for him. And so they requested bring, ship his body back to the UK. And the tribes so loved Dr. Livingston that they refused. They would not hand over his body. And finally they relented, but it's said that they cut his heart out, put a note on the body that said, you can have his body, but his heart remains in Africa. In his journals, he wrote this. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? I say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger. Now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, that may make us pause. That may cause our spirit to waver. That may cause our soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing. They are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for and through us. I never made a sacrifice. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high, 
to give himself for us. How is that possible? How is that possible that this man or, or anyone, man or woman in history, would give up so much, would endure so much hardship and pain and suffering and affliction. How is that possible? What would compel someone to live like this? One word. Love. Love. Only someone in love is willing to sacrifice like that. The whole point this morning is this. God gets our best if we truly value him as the best. Turn to the book of Malachi. Some of you are like, say what now? Since when is there a book of Malachi in the Bible? Well, for 2,500 years. But we don't, I, I see why some may think that, because we don't hear it preached on a lot in a lot of churches. And it's unfortunate because it's such a powerful book. It's four chapters, it's a short book, and yet it packs a wallop of impactful truth. It's so good. It's so messianic. I, I love this book. If you're having trouble finding it, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Also the last book chronologically of the Old Testament. If you still can't find it, just ask Google. Malachi, or it looks like it's spelled Malachi, but it's actually pronounced Malachi. In the Hebrew, it's Malachi. It means my messenger. I was talking to someone before this service, and they said, do you know what Malachi means in Filipino? I said, no. <laughs> and they said, Malachi means big. And I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm going to use that in the next service. So here you go. Malachi in Filipino means big. And you're going to see why that is so significant because God is a big God. Amen. So Malachi, my messenger. Malachi was a contemporary prophet of, a, of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century BC, about 2,500 years ago. And it's a prophetic book that is done quite uniquely. The people are questioning God to his face and every single allegation that they accuse God of, he responds to. This book shows the plight of the religious. The religious were just going through the ritualistic motions of artificial piety without any significant life change or any surrender to the Lord whatsoever. Much like the American church today, or at least good chunks of the American church, they were stuck in the middle ground of lukewarmness. Too cowardly to follow God wholeheartedly and too apathetic to reject him completely. And so they stay in this middle ground between rejecting God and following him with all their heart. Just going through the motions of religion. And some of you are here are thinking, you're, you're thinking the same thing. You're going, you're in that spot. You're in that desert place in your life where it just feels like you're just going through the motions. And you're stuck. Stuck in the middle spiritually stagnant, plateaued, and you don't know what to do. Well, maybe, just maybe, this book is for you. Maybe this message is for you. So, chapter 1, verse 1 of Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Oracle. It's not a word we use a lot. In our modern language, we tend to think of an oracle like in a sci-fi movie like The Matrix. But the oracle, an oracle was actually an authoritative pronouncement. And yet the same word in Hebrew is for the word burden. And so the Lord is lovingly rebuking his people in this book, and it is burdensome. It's weighty. It's concerning. 
I don't know if you've ever confronted a friend in their, in, in their sin. Let's say you have a friend of yours who is just heading down a destructive path and you see that they just have, they're just mired in sin. And you lovingly confront them. That's hard. That's burdensome. That's weighty. I mean, imagine someone is running, sprinting headlong toward a brick wall. They're going to run their head into the brick wall. The most unloving thing you could do would be to step back and go, have fun, as they run on by. Right? No, you tackle them. You hug them. You stand in their way and you say, no, you are not going any further. I love you too much. See, that's loving, but it is burdensome. And I'm telling you, this passage we're looking at today is burdensome. i got to be honest. Last night, I was here rehearsing the sermon. I was praying over it. And I almost completely switched the sermon I was going to do. I, was, I thought about doing a different passage because I'm like, this is, man, this is tough. This is burdensome. This is weighty. And it was so convicting. Yes, it is. It's burdensome because this is God's warning to his people. And when God warns, it is best that we listen and take heed. So verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, and yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and has left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your, eye, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I have loved you. I have loved you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Isaiah 43, but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, the one who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, since you are precious in my sight. You are honored. And listen, I love you. I love you. That should blow our minds. God, number one, listen, God loves us. Really thought that would get an amen. Let's try it again. Number one, God loves us. He loves us. Listen, don't let that be just a mundane fact. Don't let it be something that doesn't astound you. Sadly, the notion that Jesus loves me has been relegated to simply a children's song. It's become so commonplace that it's almost mundane in the eyes of most Christians. And Jesus says in John 15, Verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So have I loved you like the Father loves me. Now, I don't have time to get into the Trinitarian nature of God. We don't worship and serve three gods. We worship and serve one God, eternally existent, in three persons. And, and it baffles us how that works, but there's diversity in unity. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have this infinite, powerful, eternal love relationship with one another that just is outside the bounds of our, of our ability to fathom. And Jesus says, as the Father loves me, in that infinite, powerful way, that's how I love you. God loves us. He loves us. And as humans, we are trying to find love in so many ways. But we lose sight of the fact that God, the almighty creator of the universe, loves us deeply. Don't lose sight of that fact. 
He says, I have loved you. And they ask the people, how have you loved us? You can see it just dripping with cynicism and skepticism, right? How have you loved us? Not why. See, that'd be my question. God, why? Why do you love me? Who am I that you're mindful of me? Who are we that you care about us? Why do you love us? But that's not what they ask. They ask, how? How do you love us? Really? How has God loved them? What audacity to ask God that. Makes me think of a teenager in defiance of her parents, right? What have you done for me, mom? What have you ever done for me, dad? In other words, prove it. Prove your love. Well, your mother and I have kept you alive. (laughs) We have fed you, clothed you, given you a roof over your head. When you have wept, we have mourned with you. When you laughed, we rejoiced with you. We were at every recital, every sporting event, every game, every thing that you were a part of. We were praying for you night and day like you would not believe. We were rooting for you. We were cheering you on. We were celebrating you. We loved you in ways that you can't even begin to acknowledge. And you ask how we loved you, and we do the same thing with God. God, how have you loved us? It's so easy to forget and be unaware. God has shown us his love in a myriad of ways. And yet we live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately culture. So the people are questioning God in his very essence. Questioning, God, are you really love? Are you really all about love? And when you question God's love, his character, his authority, you open up a Pandora's box of theological implications and spiritual problems that begins a downward spiral that could easily lead to, does God even really exist? Doubting God's love, his character, is just a hop, skip, and a jump to doubting his existence. And so they ask, how have you loved us? And God says, this is his reply. It's interesting. Well, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What? God, are you condoning hate? Did you just say you hate someone? Well, God is not condoning hate. He can't condone hate because God is love. God is the essence of love. He's the epitome of love. He's the definition of love. 1 John 4, God is love. He's saying, I chose you, the Israelites, the people of Jacob, to be my people, the object of my loving affection. And I chose you over the Edomites, the people of Esau. Now, we may say, God, that's not fair. Well, hold on in the Roman series. Wait till we get to chapter 9. And you'll see God can do as he pleases. He can have compassion on whom he has compassion and mercy to whom he wills. And it wasn't because the Israelites were any better or more righteous than others. Quite the contrary, they were idolatrous, they were rebellious, and they constantly turned against God. And yet, God displayed his love to his people. They deserved to incur his wrath. And instead, God poured out his unconditional unceasing, steadfast love toward them. See, we have to remember that we also were at one time objects of God's wrath. But God, but God, say but God. We saw this last week in Romans 3. But God, in his infinite love and grace, saved and redeemed us. God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve, but demonstrates mercy through Jesus Christ over and over and over That is how we know God loves us. And so in the first five verses, God 
talks about his love for his people. But in the next section, God reveals his people's love for him, or I should say the lack thereof. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, says the Lord, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? The Lord says to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted, some translations say defiled, sacrifices upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. In two weeks, what day is it in two weeks? Dads, you should know this. Father's Day, the day that we get to receive ties and tools. I don't know why. Those are just the standard Father's Day gifts, I guess. But we love Father's Day. I think I speak on behalf of all dads here. We love Father's Day because we love to receive honor. And an honorable father should receive honor. Likewise, bosses receive respect. You're not going to go to your boss and, like, give him a wedgie. At least I hope not. You would have a really wacky relationship with your boss if that were the case. More kudos to you, I guess. But fathers receive honor, bosses receive respect, and God is saying, I am both your Lord, that is your boss, and your father. Why? Why don't I receive the honor and respect that is due to my name? Specifically, the Lord calls them, he addresses them as the priests who have despised my name. To despise someone is to have contempt. It's to have ill will toward someone, to grumble against them. It's like you're looking at someone, you just like, you're giving them the shifty eye, the stink eye, mumbling under your breath, right? You're grumbling against them. Quite literally, when you despise someone, you can't stand them. God says, You are priests who have despised my name, my character. And so the priests ask, how? How have we despised your name? They're shocked that God would say something like that. Notice their self-righteous bewilderment. It makes sense, right? Put yourself in their shoes. If someone came up to you this morning and said, I see how you despise God, you'd be like, whoa, take it down a notch, right? I guarantee most of us would be astounded at that accusation. Eight times in the book of Malachi, the people reply to God with a shocked question. What? How have we done this? Or how have we done that? And most of their questions are asked out of what I call selective blindness. The fact is that many of us have moments of selective blindness. Sin is very deceptive. We're greatly aware of other people's sins. We saw that in Romans chapter 2, but rarely aware of our own spiritual problems until we are confronted. We have blind spots. I know when I'm in my car and I'm on the highway, I'm on the interstate, I'm listening to the radio, you know, enjoying the drive, and then I see a semi-truck. I'm pulling up behind a semi-truck, and so I'm about to get into the left-hand lane to pass the truck. And so, you know, I've taken driver's ed, 10 and 2, got the hands on the wheel there, I check the rearview mirror, I look in the side mirrors, I even do this thing. Just to make sure there's no one in my blind spot. Now, I, I think I need to explain, I need to uh, explain this, that some cars have a sensor that goes, dee, 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 if you're about to sideswipe another car, right? Our cars don't have that. So, here I am, I check everything, and I start to slowly merge into the left, 
lane, start to slowly drift. And then I hear, meh, meh, and I'm just like, wakes me up. My heart is going, I mean, I'm almost, I was just almost in an accident. And rather than responding, thank you, good gentleman, sir, for that fair warning of sideswiping, I respond, hey, what's the matter with you, huh? I don't know why I get a New Jersey accent. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. Forget about it, huh? But I get irate. I get defensive. I'm honking at them. They're yelling at me. I'm yelling at them. They're probably waving at me with a special goodbye wave. <laughs> and I get defensive. Why would I get irate and defensive when it's my fault? Because we don't like blind spots being pointed out. We don't like when light is shown on our blind spots. It hurts our pride somewhat. And God right here is pointing out their spiritual blind spots. God says that they have despised his name by presenting polluted or defiled sacrifices on his altar for worship. And how do the people reply? How have we polluted you? How have we defiled you? Notice God never says they defiled him. He does say they're presented defiled sacrifices, but he doesn't say you defiled me. They already had a sense of conviction. They knew deep down that they were doing wrong. And you can tell when someone is feeling, experiencing guilt over wrongdoing. Let's say you made a plate of chocolate chip cookies. You're really excited to dig into those cookies as you watch a movie with your family in the family room. And so you put the cookies down, put the plate down, you go into the kitchen to get a glass of milk, you come back, and the cookies are gone. The plate's there, but the cookies are gone. And you're like, you know, I had some cookies here. And someone stands up, we didn't eat your cookies. Whoa. Whoa. Right? They're all defensive. Meanwhile, cookie crumbs are all over their mouth. People get very defensive and irate sometimes when they experience guilt over wrongdoing. And it wasn't what the people were doing or not doing per se. It was the heart of the matter that was crucial. They despised God. And they admit to it in their questioning. Let's look at Matthew 15. Let's look at the words of Jesus. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles same word, defiles a person, pollutes a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile or pollute a person. The Lord here gets to the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. When you seek anything, you seek after anything but God, your heart defiles him. How can we cry out, dear Lord, in our prayers if he's not Lord in our hearts? So I ask, how's your heart? How's your heart? Oh, Lord, Teach us, help us to examine and assess our hearts. Scripture literally says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Examine your heart. And part of the reason I didn't want to preach this sermon is because I'm preaching to myself first. This is convicting stuff. Oh God, are you Lord of my heart? Examine your heart. We go on in Malachi 1, verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. 
Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of my temple that you might kindle fire on my altar in vain. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. That's heavy stuff. That's burdensome. That's concerning. God answers them by pointing out how they have insulted him by providing poor sacrifices that cost them nothing. Now, we really have to address this question. Why did God's people back then have to offer animal sacrifices? We don't still do that. I'm going to tell you right now. We don't sacrifice goats in the backstage. We don't, it doesn't still happen. So why did they have to do it back then? Well, we have all sinned. We saw that in Romans 3. We've all sinned. That means we have all rebelled against God's authority in our lives. We were created to have a worshipful relationship with him, intimate relationship where he is our God, he is our Lord, but we say thanks but no thanks, I'm going to be my own Lord. I'm going to be my own God. And when you turn your back on God, the creator of life, you receive the opposite of life, which is, yeah, it's, it's easy, death. Death. Death is the price tag of sin. But God, but God does not, in his mercy, he does not kill us the moment we sin. In fact, if that were the case, humanity would have went extinct millennia ago. However, something has to atone for that sin. Something has to pay that penalty of death. For Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so, they sacrificed animals to atone for the guilt of their sin. In other words, they paid the price tag of death with the death of animals. Now you see how this leads to the gospel, right? You see how this all points to Jesus. Because Jesus, on the cross, final, ultimate sacrifice, one and done, we don't have to make these sacrifices anymore. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And so yet, back then, the people were offering animals as a sacrifice in acts of worship. But these people were offering blind lame, sick animals. Basically giving God roadkill. Not exactly giving God their best. And what's worse is that they likely had healthy animals in their flocks, in their herds, the best of the best, and they were reserving those for themselves. There's a story in Genesis chapter 4 of two guys, two brothers named Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer. He tended to the ground. He had crops. Abel was kind of a rancher. He had flocks and herds. And so it came time for them to present an offering to the Lord in worship. And it says that Abel, Abel sacrificially gave the best of his flocks and herds, while Cain gave some crops. God delights, therefore, in Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's. Why? Because Cain did not make a true sacrifice. You can grow crops back, can't grow a sheep back. Abel gave his best. He gave the best of his flocks, the best of his herds. He did not hold back. And so I ask you, who valued God more, Cain or Abel? Abel. Abel was willing to give up things of value for the one he valued most. Number three, sacrifice shows significance. It shows significance. Someone will give up treasures for what they treasure more. That is always true. 
And honestly, this occurs every day. We do this every day. This occurs any time we make a transaction of time or money. It's an exchange of value. Raise your hand if you're a Chicago Bears fan. Lord bless you. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's off-season. Hope springs eternal in the off-season. I'm a Denver Broncos fan. We have fallen on hard times in recent years. And so, uh, you know, but I'm always optimistic in the off-season. Like, oh, they're going to win it all. They're going to win the Super Bowl. Probably not. But I love football. I played football in high school. I love watching football. It's such a fascinating game to me because you have this mix of strategy and passion. So I just love watching football. Every Saturday, every Sunday, turn on the TV, watch football. I love going to games. And so a couple days ago, I was curious about the Chicago Bears home opener. September 17th, Monday night game, Seattle Seahawks, Soldier Field. I'm like, you know, I've never been to Soldier Field. That would be pretty cool. So I get online. I look up how much tickets are. I kid you not, $175 for the cheap seats. That's the cheapest I could find. That's the nosebleeds. That's like you get the binoculars. Is there a football game down there? $175. Now I realize some of you go to the games. That's awesome. More power to you. But when I saw that, I was like, well, I don't love football. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. I started rationalizing. I started going, well, it's just really a game of grown men who are sweaty, who are hitting each other, who are colliding, and, and they have this oblong ball made of pigskin going up and down this grassy field, trying to carry it across a white line. Really, is it worth screaming at them for three or four hours? Like, ah, I'm not going to give up that much money. And what I'm doing is I'm evaluating, evaluating. I'm, com I'm, I'm comparing the worth of what I would have to give up, the time, the money, the sacrifice for something, for an experience that may or may not be more or equivalent to the worth of what I'd have to give up. We do this all the time. My wife and I just canceled our Netflix account with much weeping and gnashing of teeth. That was hard. Actually, that's partially true. We still have two more weeks until it's officially canceled, so we're maybe binge-watching. But anyway... We realized a couple months ago, we were praying about it, and we're like, man, we spend a lot of time on Netflix. I mean, we really do. Like, I'll get home from work, and I'm tired, and rather than talking, praying together, doing a Bible devotional together, we're like, what's on Netflix? And I'm not have nothing against Netflix, depending on what you watch, but I just realized, where are we giving our value? Where are we giving our worth? Giving up things of value, time and money for something of value greater value, greater worth. And so when the Israelites were offering improper, bad sacrifices to the Lord, it shows that they were indifferent toward God's presence among them. That's the heart issue. People may say they value God, but some don't. God asks, would you do this to the governor? Would you do this to your government, to an official, to a leader you admire, to a famous person? Imagine that you have an old beat-up car, and you have to pay your taxes. You cannot pay your taxes. You can't afford to pay them. And so remember the Cash for Clunkers program several years ago? Let's say you're like, well, that worked back then. So you drive to Washington, D.C. You pull up that old beat-up car in front of the IRS building, and you say, here are the keys. It's yours now. Cash for Clunkers, baby. And you walk off. Do you think our government would tolerate that? No. And so we pay taxes to whom taxes are due. 
We show more honor to people than to the creator God who created us. We give God the short end of the stick all too often rather than giving him the glory that is due his name. Oh, how often I say, God, I'm just too busy for you today. Maybe I can squeeze you in at 5 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> Maybe I got a few minutes then. I could squeeze you in. And rather than centering my day on the Lord and building everything else around that, I just squeeze him in. Folks, that's half-heartedness. God, you can't have all of me, but you can have my leftovers. I love steak. I love a good steak. Going to, I don't get to go to a steakhouse very often, but I love a good steak. And so, you know, get a sirloin or a T-bone or something like that. And you cut into the steak and it's so tender and it's just the right amount of pink. And you put it in your mouth, this tender morsel as juice drips down your tongue. And it's just the right flavor of seasoning. I, look, some of you are vegetarians. I get that. Just imagine your favorite tofu. I don't know. But I'm eating the steak and I just love it. It's so good. Every morsel, every bite is so tasty. But I'm full. I can't finish the whole thing. And so I get a to-go bag. I take it home. And the next day for lunch, I pop it in the microwave. And I'm like, oh, here comes that steak. Woo! About to relive that experience. And I pull it out of the microwave. And how does the steak look? It's shriveled. It's dry. It's nasty. It's so hard you could probably play Frisbee with it. You try to cut it with a knife. The knife, like, bends. You chew on it like a dog on a soup bone. (laughs) And it's awful. Nobody likes leftover steak. Nobody delights in leftovers. And it's so easy to make all of our life about ourselves, to keep the best for ourselves, and to give God our leftovers. God deserves better than our leftovers. What do we hope to gain when we hold back from God? God, you can have all of me, but don't go in this closet. This closet is full of skeletons that back there. Don't, don't go in there, but you can have all the rest of me. God, I'm going to give you 100%. No, you know what? I'll give you 95%. No, you know what? 87%. I'll give you 87%. That's good batting average. 87% of me. Here you go. I'm going to hold the 13% for myself. What do we hope to gain from holding back that 13%? Do we think we can do more with that than God can? We hold back rather than willingly offering him everything. And God's response in verse 10 is stop with your empty worship. I'd rather you close the doors of the church than to offer fake religious worship. God doesn't just want your Sunday mornings. He wants your heart. Verse 12. The Lord says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. And you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The people say how tiresome it is to worship God. Do you see how far their hearts were drifting? They snort contemptuously at worshiping God. (laughs) How tiresome, how wearisome it is to worship him. And many may not do this with their voice, but we sometimes may do this with our actions, with our lifestyles. We may say Jesus just flat out is not that important. 
To call yourself a Christian is to bear the name of Christ. That's what it means. You are saying that you follow Jesus above all else. And yet when it comes down to it, following him for some is just not worth it. Jesus is not the treasure in their hearts. And God says, how? Why? Have I not loved you? Why would you deal with me in such indifference? I am the great king and my name will be revered. It will be held in highest esteem and highest honor among all the nations. Why do you withhold from me? Why do you hold back some? Do I not deserve your best? Yes, he does. And that's what leads us back to verse 11. I believe this verse is the crux of this whole passage. Let's look finally at verse 11. The Lord says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God will be, listen to me, God will be glorified among all peoples. Revelation 7 says that there will be people gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every dialect, every culture, every background of all people groups worshiping Jesus forever and ever and ever with that kind of unity and diversity all around the throne of Jesus forever and ever. How awesome is that picture of heaven? And right now, Right now, it says from the setting of the sun till it's going down right now in every time zone, God is being praised and his name is being adored among people. In every time zone, God will absolutely be glorified by all. So is your, your life, give him the glory he deserves. You know, we just sang it earlier. One of my favorite songs, what a beautiful name. And I love the bridge of that song. It says, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of your glory for you are raised to life again. You have no rifle. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. He is worthy. Listen to me, church. He is worthy. Somebody say, he is worthy. Say it again. He is worthy. He is worthy of it all. Is he worthy of it all in your heart? Is he first in your heart? Is he he the king of your heart? Maybe you're here and you're stuck in that spiritual middle ground, mired in despair. You want to go from spiritual apathy to spiritual awakening? Pray. Pray that God would help you understand the supremacy of Christ, that he is worthy of it all, of every shred of glory. Pray for Jesus to be your greatest treasure. The supremacy of Christ leads us to love the one who is most lovely, to glorify the one who deserves all glory, to praise the one who is most praiseworthy, namely Jesus Christ. So God gets our best if we value him as best.